I've admired Alex for a long time. This is Pastor Alex Bryant and his wife, Angela. I've admired him from a long time from a distance. And uh, long before he started the ministry he's doing now, he was an executive pastor at one of our sister churches here in the area at uh, New Life in Oak Grove. So that's where I first met him. But I was just impressed with his manner and the way he spoke and taught. And, you know, he's, you know as a minister, you see people and you think, I want to be more like that guy. So I've, I've always thought that about him. And then uh, he, he's, he's had a ministry for quite a while. In fact, they are, they are now U.S. missionary chaplains for racial reconciliation. So this was long before he even did that. And they've been married for 28 years. They live in Nixa. But he started this ministry that he's doing now in um, 2019 as a result of those shootings that happened in Dallas and some of the other racial events that had happened. And he, he wrote a book about that because he and Angela have a unique experience with that, something that, that is different unless you've lived it. I don't know that you can fully experience that. But then about, I don't know, six, eight months ago, he, he let me know he'd written another book also about, about being a man in this culture. And then you know that we, we speak about culture a lot in this church because I feel like as Christians, the tendency has been to withdraw from culture rather than engage in what's happening. And as Christians, that's not what we're called to do. We're supposed to be salt and light. So when we had the opportunity to have him this morning. I jumped at that. And so I'm excited to introduce to you Pastor Alex Bryant. Yes. Good to see you, man. Appreciate yeah, you, bless you. Yes. Thanks, Pastor Dennis. Well, what's up, Crown Point? A brother's got to get a little bit more than that. What's up? That's what's going on right there. Well, I am Alex Bryant. I am here with my lovely wife. Now, you guys are in for a special treat. And you'll hear more about why later, but um, Bud is what I call her. My wife and I have been married for 28 years. We've known each other since second grade. And I know it's been a while. She chased me for a while. She wanted to get married to me. And I was like, no, girl. But I finally was like, fine, I'll marry you. You know what I mean? And so, but so that's my story. I have the microphone. But so we um, really and honestly, she hasn't been, we used to travel together all the time. And I'll tell you a little bit more about why, but she hasn't been out on the road with me for a while. But Bud is here with me today. Baby, stand up so that people can see how pretty you are. Angela Bryant right here. Yeah, so. So that is my bride of 28 years. And again, known each other since grade school. We've been married and um, since 28 years. We've got five kids. Just to tell you a little bit about us, and you can kind of see, I am a big, bald, beautiful black man. And um, yeah, don't forget the beautiful part. And she is a beautiful little white lady. And so she's one of you guys. So, so anyway, <laughs> but it's, it's the obvious past, you know, Pastor Dennis, we're, we're like brothers from another mother. Cause both of us got the bald, beautiful head. Um, yeah. And you know, both of us walk with a bit of a limp. I just had ACL surgery. I know he's had ACL problems there. I played football at Evangel University back in the day. And so, yeah, I was a wide receiver. And um, see, you guys aren't with it. Because do I look like I ever could have been a wide receiver? Come on now. Now, I realize that probably most of the football fans are like at home watching the, uh, watching the Chiefs right now. So you guys are more godly than them, right? Amen? So... But no, I was an offensive lineman back in the day. I was not a wide receiver. And so, um, but the Lord has just been with us and, um, and just kind of, you know, Ange and I, as we've done ministry for years, we've been married and just was called into the ministry when we were young. Both of us were. I end up going, we, we're from a small little town in Macomb, Illinois. And so it's just across the river from Quincy, Illinois. Anybody ever heard of Macomb? 
No, usually, so maybe we wanted to. So it's home of Western Illinois University. And so we grew up, you know, that's where we grew up at. Before that, I was from Fort Pierce, Florida. Very, um, it's a segregated town. That's the only way I can tell you about it. Um, Fort Pierce, Florida, even to this day, um, you know, when I grew up, my mom and dad, they were young when they had me, um, Barb and um, Barb Houston, Alex Bryant, that's my dad's real name. And they were 15, 16 when they had me. Both of them were, you know, teenagers, got pregnant, dropped out of school. And my dad didn't have a job. So he, you know, what, what kind of 15 year old, what kind of work can you do? So he became a street pharmaceutical salesman. And um, he wasn't very good at it. Now, for some of you guys are like, what, what is that? He was a drug dealer. Okay. And so wasn't very good, so he spent a lot of years in jail and prison. And, you know, that all when I was growing up, that's kind of what I knew. And my mom was very young, didn't really know how to be a mom at the time. And so my grandmother pretty much raised me. For the first few years of my life, I thought my grandmother was my mom. And we lived in a small two-bedroom house. My mom, my grandmother, um, my mom was there part-time. My Uncle Joey was there. My Aunt Kay and her four kids all in a two-bedroom house. I mean, we, were, we weren't even poor. We were poe. We couldn't even afford the OR, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was, we were poe. And so, but, you know, it was a lot, and, you know, people say, we were poor, we didn't know it. We knew we were poe, you know what I'm saying? Like, like I knew it, you know. I was like, how come those kids have that? And I ain't got nothing, you know. So, but, you know, there was a lot of love. And so, um, one of my earliest memories is when I was four years old, I come home from preschool. And, again, my mom, her stuff, sometimes she stayed at our house. I slept in a little twin bed with my grandma, Cat. My mom was in the next bed. Sometimes my Uncle Joey, they'd fight over who got the bed there in the same bedroom. And, um, but I remember all of her stuff being gone. And, you know, I was like, this is weird. Like, her pictures, all of her clothes that were in the bottom two drawers, they were gone. It's my earliest memory when I was four years old. And, you know, my grandmother and my Aunt Kay's like, well, your mom's just gone for a couple days. She'll be back here in a few days, a few weeks. And, and, and that ended up turning into a few months, and it ended up turning into a couple years. My mom had left. I didn't see her again for a couple years. And we were, you know, in Fort Pierce, Florida, very segregated town. I mean, black people lived in one part of the town, and, and the white people lived on another side. It, and and it was, it's still to this day a little bit racially charged. Like for the first probably seven, eight years of my life, I thought, I thought white people were called crackers. That's what I thought. You know, I thought y'all was crackers. You know what I'm saying? Now, listen, don't leave out of here saying I called you a cracker because I didn't, okay? I just said that's what I thought, all right? So, and, but that's just what we, you know, we grew up, you know, the crackers over there and the black people over here and you don't trust the man and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, so that's how I grew up with a little bit of distrust. And then I come home from preschool when I'm four. I don't see my mom again until I'm six. You can't trust your own mom now. Man, the devil was trying to give me a worldview that doesn't fit with where I'm at right now. Can't trust your mom. Can't trust white people. Don't trust, don't trust. And we see how in our culture and our society, how that's working out for us, right? And so I remember when I was about six, my mom finally came back. And um, she had met a boy when I um, came down for spring break. And they frolicked on the beach. They frolicked around on the beach for a, you know, a couple of days. And finally, he's like, why don't you come back you know, with me to Illinois for a few days? And that was her plan. And you know, it ended up turning into a couple years. And, but when she came back, she was with a different guy, and she tried to bring me back to Illinois, Macomb, Illinois, to live with them. And I did that school there for a little bit of time, but it just wasn't the same. And I acted out. I was bad. I was getting in trouble. So she shipped me back down to Florida. And then she came back the next year and tried it again and, you know, acted out again, and she shipped me back down to Florida. Finally, my second grade year, she was with a guy, a new guy, who the guy that became, he ended up becoming my stepdad. She was a little bit more stable. And uh, she put me in school. She's like, it's just me and you now, buddy. Cat ain't going to save you. 
And so, uh, man, it was, it was that, that's when I started my time in Macomb, Illinois. And, um, man, it was just, it was difficult. It was tough because Macomb is just different from what I was used to. About fourth grade year, my mom started working with Angie's mom at a nursing home. And that's when they first met. Now, we, the thing that my mom would do, even when we were in the projects of Macomb, Illinois, she wasn't a Christian. My dad, my stepdad wasn't a Christian, but she made me go to church. So every single Sunday, I'd walk out the projects, down the street to Mount Calvary, Church of God in Christ. Ha! You got to put a ha at the end of Church of God in Christ, you know what I'm saying? And Pastor Elder Starlings, ha! Mother Coleman, ha! They'd meet me. Mother Coleman would meet me at the door for Sunday school, and she'd greet me every single Sunday, and she'd say, baby, I want you to know that Mother Coleman loves you, and God loves you, and he's got a plan for your life. And she'd tell me that every Sunday. She'd give me a great big old hug. And then she'd like give me a quarter to memorize the memory verse or the books of the Bible or whatever. And so every Sunday, my mom would make me go to church. She wasn't going. Her and my stepdad, they'd be getting high, drinking with all their friends the night before. I'd wake up, walk out of the projects, down the street to Mount Calvary Church of God in Christ. (laughs) And Mother Coleman would greet me at the door, give me a great big old hug. Baby, Mother Coleman loves you. And God loves you. He's got a plan for your life. I started to believe her. Mother Coleman introduced me to Jesus. And um, Jesus changed my life. And uh, man, I went on from there a couple years later, was called to preach. And my pastor, Elder Starlings, he would tell me, if you're going to preach the word, you got to know the word. So when I was 12 years old, I'm reading through the Bible in the King James Version. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. I didn't even know what panteth meant, but I'm reading it. You know what I'm saying? Just putting the, putting the word in my heart. And, um, and man, the Lord was just getting a hold of my heart. And it was because my mother called me and introduced me to Jesus. She loved me that God loved me and that he had a plan for my life. And I just want to say this, just a a quick little moment for all you Sunday school teachers. And I just want to honor you, all you small group teachers, you're just teaching these kids, these kids that you may not know if it's making a difference or not. It is. They're hearing, they're listening. And um, man, I've been able to go um, really around the world and spread the gospel, preach the gospel. Now our ministry, we go all over the United States and we share the gospel that Mother Coleman taught me that Jesus loves you, that God loves you. He's got a plan for your life. And um, it was all because Mother Coleman taught me. And if you're teaching the young people, I just want to honor you. Please keep on. We need faithful people like you that are teaching the younger generation at a young age that God loves them. And so, you know, we go on from there. Junior high, um, you know, we, our fourth grade year, my mom and Angie's mom started working together. All throughout junior high, we started to make a switch from the, um, the, the Kojic church ha, to the Assemblies of God church. That's where Angie's family was going to church at. My mom wanted, she'd gotten saved after a while, and she wanted to get a little bit more discipleship and just kind of studying the word, a systematic approach. And so we switched over to the Assemblies of God, and that's when um, I really, I knew Angie before because from Macomb, everybody knows everyone, but that's when we started going to church together and just started to, our hearts started to bond together. And, and I, you think I'm joking. She saw this brother from away. She's like, ooh, who's that caramel chocolate brother? You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, I think that's what she was thinking. She's smiling, so I'm just going to say that that's, you, yeah, see, you see her over there, she's smiling. And so, but we dated once in high school, but I was kind of a bad boy, just a little bit of a bad boy, you know what I'm saying? And look at all the ladies smiling, because all girls a little bit of a bad boy, you know, just a little bit, a little bit goes a long way, you know what I'm saying? And, and I just thought she's a little bit too square, and you know, but we dated once in high school, but then I went off to evangelism, <laughs> I'm just keeping it real, baby, you know, keeping it real. 
I went off to Evangel University and played ball there. And then she ended up transferring there, or went to um, seminary there to get her master's in counseling. And then in um, 92 is when I came home in um, one summer and we just kind of was looking at each other and she's looking at me and I'm looking at her and she starts doing that thing where she's twirling her hair. Now, if there's any single dudes out here, if they start twirling their hair and they give me the, what? what? That's a sign. You know what I'm saying, brother? If you, see, this brother over here saying, I knew it was a sign. It is. If a girl's like twirling her hair, give me the, what? That means she's into you. You know what I'm saying? And so then, and then she asked me to marry her and I said, fine. <laughs> okay, just kidding. She didn't ask me to marry her. <laughs> but we got married in 95. And uh, man, the Lord's just been kind of with us. And we knew that we were called just to spread the gospel. We didn't care where. We didn't care how. We were called to make disciples, as, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19. And so, um, man, we started teaching Sunday school. We were still in the business world for a number of years. And then um, back in, I think it was about 20, 2001, we went into full-time ministry. And just, just since then, I, we don't care if it's young adults, youth, adults, inner city, suburbs. We want to make disciples, go and spread the gospel to all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that the Bible says. And so um, we, were, we found ourselves doing that in St. Louis. And uh, man, it was in the year then was about 2014. And you guys remember, um, you know, we went there 2014 and Ferguson happened. Mike Brown, hands up, don't shoot. And I find myself, you know, I was pastoring the St. Louis Dream Center. I worked for Joyce Meyer Ministry. And I, I had, I was the lead pastor of the church there. It was an inner city church. We had about 600 black people here, predominantly black. And um, when, when that happened, you know, the incident happened, Man, black people were just frustrated, mad, upset. St. Louis is a very segregated city as well. It reminded me of Fort Pierce, Florida. Black people on one side, white people on the other side. In St. Louis, if you're familiar with that place, there's this street called the Del Mar, Del Mar Boulevard. It's the Del Mar Divide. And, uh, man, black people usually stay um, to the east side of that, a little bit north of the highway there and around the Ferguson area, Clayton area. And, man, black people just in St. Louis, even to this day, they feel like the white people have pushed them there. So there's already tense, tense, already tension there. The police presence is heavier in the Ferguson-Clayton area. And, you know, you can say it's because of race or you can say it's because of, you know, crime, which crime usually follows a socioeconomic pattern, which socioeconomic usually happens with the, you know, minority communities. And so whatever reason you want to say, um, there's a heavy police presence there and the black people feel it. So when Ferguson happened, it was just a, a matter of um, the tensions were already boiling over and, you know, you have... Um, this young man that was shot, and um, and I remember being on the streets um, during the 11 days of riots after that, and they asked the clergy to come out and to help keep the peace between the people and the police. So you had, you know, the rioters on one side or protesters, whatever you want to call it, and then you'd have a little, like a walkway about this much, and then you'd have the police presence on the other side protecting, you know, businesses or whatever. And they wanted clergy to come in there late afternoon, early evening, and just kind of walk down the middle to just kind of interact with both sides to keep the peace. And I can remember it was day four. I can remember there talking with some of the, the young men, because it was mainly young men out there protesting, young black men, and they're frustrated and I'm um, just tense, and they were yelling stuff. And, and, we, and I'm talking to them, and I hear stuff like this. Listen, pastor, we're just mad. We're frustrated. You know, they, they treat us wrong. You know, but we know that Mike Brown didn't have his hands up. We know that he was going for that officer's gun. I mean, I would have, if I was a police, I probably would have shot him too, but we're just still mad. So this is what they're telling me. Black pastor, black young men on the streets of Ferguson, day four. And I can remember seeing Anderson Cooper from CNN. From here to the 
to the sound booth. And, and he's talking to the same people that I'm talking to. And I know they're telling him the same stuff because they're going around looking for cameras to get in front of. And then I remember going home that night and Anderson Cooper, um, he says, yeah, I'm here in Ferguson, Missouri, you know, where witnesses say, um, where police shot an man that witnesses say that someone's asking him not to shoot. And I remember going, okay, is he going to give the other side to that story? And day five, day six, day seven, day eight, nine, 10, 11, day, he never did. It was just always I mean, Anderson Cooper here live on the ground in Ferguson, Missouri, where police have once again shot an unarmed black man who witnesses say had his hands up begging for him not to be shot. And I thought, man, that's the first time as a black man who's grown up in pretty segregated areas and who really kind of had a bias kind of talked to him. That was the first time that I thought to myself, wow, the media really is playing into this narrative that they're trying to feed us. So then you fast forward um, two years from there. Angie and I, we left the city. Um, it was just too hard to minister in Ferguson. Tensions were too high. Black people were all mad at white people, and white people were walking around like, what did I do? I'm not. And so it was just tough there. And so the Lord moved us on. We um, took a job as the executive pastors at New Life Church right down the road in Oak Grove. And um, if you guys remember what happened in June of 2016, July 20, June, right around June and July 2016, big old race incident where five police officers were shot and killed in Dallas, Texas. You guys remember that? And so they were shot and killed by a black man who said that he was frustrated that police were killing unarmed black people. Now, I'll tell you this. Um, in our family, we're very pro-police. I have two cousins who um, have been on the police force in Macomb, Illinois. For, they're my age. One of them just retired, Caleb. Um, he was just retired. And my cousin Guy still is on the police force. Um, I got a white brother-in-law who was a sheriff's deputy in Bolivar, Missouri. He just now went to the Fed Med there in Springfield. My uncle, um, Bill Thorpe, was the first black police officer on the force in, in um, Macomb, Illinois, back in the 70s. And then I got an uncle, Junior, um, who was one of the first police officers on the force in Fort Pierce, Florida. So I'm very pro-police. Got a lot of friends that are police officers. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think that we should examine and see what's going on, examine, have conversations about some of the bias, but it didn't sit well with me when these police officers were shot and killed. And I can remember that was on a Thursday night. I can remember Friday, um, I come home, my son, Mason, or Trey, I'd just taken him to physical therapy. And um, we come back from the hospital, from the physical therapy office, and I told Angie, I was like, man, the Lord's really talking to me. I'm going to go downstairs and write some stuff down. I'll need you to keep the kids out of my hair for a little while. Now, that's not hard to do, you know, because, you know, Bob, but... And she's like, yeah, absolutely. And I go downstairs and I sit at my desk. I take a piece of paper out and a pen. And the Lord gave me 26 phrases in like 10 minutes. And I come upstairs and I'm like, hey, Ange, like this is what the Lord gave me. And um, she's like, man, she read over it and she's like, oh, yeah. And the Lord then began to just give her, download her um, with just the other part of this. She's like, well, this is what we're going to do. And the Lord said, make a video. And um, we did that. And, she, and then she knew we're going to have the kids involved. We're going to wear red, white, and blue. You know, we're going to bring them in one at a time and just, and she, and the Lord started to download stuff to her. We made this video and we posted it on Facebook and it just blew up and went viral. It's got 50 million views and I'm going to show it to you. Maybe some of you guys remember it, but you know, here's, here's that video right there. Who am I? What have I become? Do I stand for something? You know I had a good heart once, you see. 
message, I'll tell you, um, I've preached a lot of sermons in my life. And some of them have not been very good because usually my wife is sitting right there in the front row and she'll give me the whole, she'll let me know. And some of them, I think they've been pretty darn good, you know, and um, man, some of them have been real good. Like if Jesus was sitting in the audience, he'd be taking notes, you know what I'm saying? That's how good I felt like they were, okay? I'm just joking, but. But really, and honestly, that message, I can't even say it was me, Pastor. Like, the Lord just spoke to me in 10 minutes and just said, write these things down. And I did. It was as close to being divinely inspired as I could. And the message has resonated because it's, it's launched us into what we're doing now. Um, year after we were on, after, year after we made this video, we left our job at New Life as executive pastors. We started our own ministry, Alex Bryant Ministries. We became U.S. missionary chaplains. We are the first um, U.S. missionaries. We're under U.S. missions, but we're the first chaplains who um, have the um, who have been commissioned for racial reconciliation? And our message is this: It's not black versus white. It's not the people versus the police. It's dark versus light. The devil has been trying to use the sin of racism, the sin of injustice, to try to divide us, to try to distract us from doing what God's called us Christians to do, which is to go and spread the message, the gospel. And what we say, no more. We're not going to let it happen. The Lord gave us a passage, and um, we use this wherever we go. It's out of 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. It says, this is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, first of all, who are the people who claim to have fellowship with him? Christians, right? I claim to have fellowship with him. So if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. We say it purifies us even from the sin of racism. See, this message is for the church. We believe that Christians, we are the ones who are supposed to speak into this generation. We're supposed to speak into um, those people that are frustrated, that are upset, 
Man, black and brown people are all mad. They're upset. They're, they're confused about all this racism. We know that the media perpetuates it. The politicians, they try to stir us up. They want to keep us at each other's throats so that the media can get money. It's all about clicks. It's all about getting us to like stuff. If you see a headline with race or, you know, unarmed black man shot or police shoot somebody, you always, we click on this stuff. And the politicians want to keep us frustrated so they can get our votes. They want to keep the black community frustrated and, and not focusing on the issues because they know that if we focus on issues, maybe our votes will change. But I say no more. And so what we do is we, we've been called now um, as U.S. missionary chaplains for racial reconciliation to talk about these issues. We take this video. We've turned it into a book. It's called Let's Start Again. It's a biracial couple's view on race, racial ignorance, and racial insensitivity. We say that not everything is racist. We want to redefine some of the terms. Now, don't get me wrong. There still are some racist knuckleheads around, right? There's some of those. But let's be real. If somebody came up in here and, and said, who's that N-word up there preaching? I wouldn't even have to address him because I imagine some of my white brothers and sisters would be all up in his face ready to beat him down in the name of Jesus, right? I mean, am I right or wrong? Because we, we, we don't stand for that as a society and a culture, but that's not what the media and that's not what politicians are telling us. They want us to believe that everyone is racist. All my white brothers and sisters, you guys are all white supremacists. I reject that. I reject things like critical race theory that teach my mixed kids that their mom's side of the family is all inherently racist and that our side of the family is victims. That's just not the case. Where else than in America could a young black dude who were born to two teenagers who dropped out of high school, my real dad's been in prison almost half of my life, I was able to go to college to get two degrees, I have a master's degree, and I'm working on my doctoral degree. Where else can that happen but in America? Amen? So... So we take this message to the inner cities. That's what I love to do. We go into Chicago. We've been there a few times um, this year. We go to St. Louis. We've been there. We take it to the inner city. And I talk to young men and women who look like me, and I give them that message of hope. We do it here in Kansas City. We pastor, um, partner with Reed City Church over there. Uh, we take this to Quincy, Illinois, some of the inner city places where there's large black populations, and we give this resource out. I'm going to give this one away. Anybody want it? It's just going to be right here. You come and take it. It's yours. You want to be shy? It won't be yours. So there you go. So let's start again. There you go, brother. There you go. There you go. Right there. So, hey, thank you. And, um, hey, I'd love for all of you guys to have them, and I'll give you one for $15. Come to my table back out there. And um, really what happens is with our ministry as U.S. missionary, um, you guys know how missionary status is. We have to raise our funds. These resources help us do that. Um, these resources, when you guys buy one of these, it literally helps us to go to places like Chicago. We're partnering with them a few times next year. We got an inroad to go to, um, to do prison ministry with the, um, with the Denver Dream Center. And so we want to go in there and just give away hundreds of books. When you guys help support our ministry by buying our resources, you help us do that. We take the message of reconciliation. It's, it's completely opposite of the message that Black Lives Matter is trying to give. Um, and, and I reject that message. You know, hey, the notion, do Black Lives Matter? Yes. Do White Lives Matter? Yes. Do Blue Lives Matter? Yes. I'm okay with saying that. I'm okay with saying Black Lives Matter. The sentiment, yes, but not the, not the organization. I know what it's like to not have a dad in, the, in my home. I know what it's like to grow up without having a dad around. And so for me, I try to be the best dad ever. And I reject the notion in any organization that says that they want to dismantle the traditional American nuclear family. I'm trying to build the traditional American nuclear family with mom and dad in the home. You know what I'm saying? And so that message right there is one that we are giving out. I think that it will bless you, it will resource you and tool you and help you to engage in the needed conversation that is happening in the races. Everybody's talking about it on Facebook, social media. The young people are talking about it. 
We talk about social justice and all those things. And so what, what God's called us to do as U.S. chaplains for racial reconciliation, he's commissioned us. And, you know, I got a picture of our commissioning up here when Angie and I, I think it was in, um, in 2020 that we were commissioned as um, chaplains, the first ones for racial reconciliation. Here's our message. It's out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 19. It says this, all this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So here's what our message is. We say this and we believe this, that reconciliation changes everything. And we want to help reconcile people into God first, ourselves second, and each other third. And we do it through written, spoken, and media content. I'll just quickly unpack that. Reconciliation to God is salvation. We believe that every time we have the opportunity to spread the message, to preach, to teach, to talk, we're going to give an altar call. You come in here today, you may not know Jesus. You may not understand how a black man can stand up here and say, hey, I love, I have peace, unity, forgiveness, because Jesus forgave me first, and he told me to forgive other people. And that's what I want to teach and preach. And so we want to reconcile people into God first. That's how true reconciliation happens. So reconciliation to God, ourselves, secondly, that's the discipleship process. There's work that needs to be done. That's why we love partnering with the local church. We are church people, Angie and myself. From Sunday school to small group to church, we are all about it. We are told not to forsake the gathering of the believers. This is where we go for iron to sharpen iron. And and discipleship happens in the church. We believe in the local church. And so that's how we grow to become like Jesus. And obviously that happens through reading his word, studying his word, and living his word out. But then also we reconcile to each other. That could be racial reconciliation, family reconciliation, marriage reconciliation. Those are things that we do. And we do it through written, spoken, and media content. And, um, and you know, here a part of that is like, you know, written, we write books, we speak, we do a podcast, and we do um, radio. And I'll go give you that in a second. But also um, through media content, the Lord's kind of given us this mind to, um, to become people of men and women of Issachar. Uh, you know, here, I'll give you this. Yeah. Um, this is the cool story here. It, we have these cards here. Come into our table, if you will, and get one of our prayer cards. This tells a little bit about who we are and, um, and then just some of our resources that we have. We have shirts, T-shirts, um, Man Up, and Let's Start Again. Um, and we'd love to, that, when you purchase one of those, it helps us with our ministry going. And then we have some books. But um, also, you need one of these cards because we want you to get on our mailing list. But here's the cool thing what the Lord did. Put back up that last slide there. So we do this podcast called The Way We See It. And we have almost 200 episodes. Angie and I didn't even know what a podcast was because we're old, old school. You know what I'm saying? And so one of our um, youth that was in our ministry um, a couple years ago in Florida, he's like, hey, I like the stuff that you guys are saying. You should do a podcast. We're like, what's that? And so he's like, he's like well, it's like radio. I'm like, how do you get on radio? He's like, look, I'm going to send you, I'm going to tell you what to buy. Go out and buy this unit and just speak, send it to me, and then I'll put it up on a podcast. I'm like, all right, fine. So we've been doing that on the way we see it. Every week, every Tuesday morning, we drop a new episode of our podcast. I think we're up to like 190, 193 or something like that. And we just talk about things. Um, um, We talk about um, race. We talk about theology. We talk about books. We talk about politics. Um, We talk about religion, anything. It's the way that we see it. And we try to look at things, not we try, we look at things from a biblical perspective. We want to help people develop a biblical, theological worldview. That means a worldview based on what the Bible has to say. And so we talk about these things. And then recently here, the crazy thing is with this last thing here, 
um, I'm actually on the radio now in Springfield. So a couple um, years ago, last year, I ended up running for U.S. Congress down in our area. Never ran for any office before, but felt like the Lord saying, go for it. I obviously didn't win, or else I'd be in D.C. now, but I'm stuck here with you jokers. And um, so anyway... (laughs) No, but the Lord, I just felt like the Lord saying that we need, um, we need strong Christians that are able to speak into what's going on. And he's beginning to talk to me about being a man of Issachar, a man who is able to see what's going on, understand the times, and know what direction we're supposed to go in. And so when I ran for Congress, I didn't win, but I had a pretty good showing, according to people there. And so the local political radio station started asking me to guest host. So I started doing that last December and January, February. And so finally they're like, hey, do you have any, you have any interest of taking over the show? And I was like, nah, I'm in ministry. I, don't, I, I travel too much because I'm on the road 35, 40 weeks of the year. And they're like, okay. So March, they come back again. April, I'm like, May. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. And I, I don't want to talk about politics all the time. And so they're like, well, what if we change it? What if we just talk about life through a conservative lens? You can talk about ministry. You can talk about your books. You can talk about whatever. So I was like, well, I'd consider that. And then, so I was like, well, but I just travel too much. I, I'm on the road. I can't do it. I need a co-host. So they're like, well, what if we find one for you? So they, they, they just started taking care of everything. And so literally now, Monday through Fridays, from 5.30 to 9 a.m., I'm on the show, a listening audience of 250,000 people, wake up Springfield, spreading the gospel. Tomorrow morning at 8.20, I'll be doing a segment called The Pastor's Perspective. I have a different local pastor on. We talk about Jesus. We invite people to church. That's the Lord opening up doors right there. So that's Wake Up Springfield. And so the Lord's just been telling me, be a man of Issachar who's able to understand the times and to speak into our culture and be able to direct people and know which direction and area we should go in. So that's what I've been trying to do. First Chronicles 12.32, it says this, from Issachar. And this is when David was trying to establish his throne. And they needed wisdom to come from all these people. They had men that were good with the bow and arrow, warriors. But they needed men and women, I say even now, who are, who are wise enough to know what's happening in the world, who's wise enough to see through what the politicians and the media is trying to tell us um, to distract us, to divide us. So from the tribe of Issachar, um, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs with all their relatives. The Lord's been telling me um, and us, really, to raise up and to challenge and encourage the church to become men and women of Issachar, to speak in the areas that they're telling us to stay out of. So like, you know, for example, Black Lives Matter, they talk into three areas, racial reconciliation or racial justice. And, you know, let's say that they do a decent job. I don't know. But then they're also trying to pitch the LGBTQ agenda. They're confusing these kids. Are they born gay? Are they not born gay? But the Bible speaks clearly on that. This, all the transgender stuff, my heart goes out to any young person who's confused about their their gender and even about their sexuality. I don't like that, first of all, because why are we talking about so much sex with these young kids, first of all, it's sexualizing our generation. But, you know, um, but the Bible talks about these things. And then they're trying to confuse us with the right for women to choose, which is what? Abortion. You know, 65, 70 million babies in our country have been killed because of abortion. And they tell us, man, you don't have a dog in the fight. Be quiet. They tell women, my body, my choice. Man, you have nothing to say about it. Well, I reject that. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to speak up for life. My mom was 16 when she got pregnant and had me. I'm thankful that she chose life. My grandma had to step in and help raise me, my Aunt Kay, but she chose life. I'm thankful for that. And so now I'm always going to stand up and speak out for the unborn. And so I notice around our culture and our society that men are being told, you don't have a voice. Well, I decided to speak into that. 
So I wrote this book, and this just came out a few months back, Man Up. It's a guide to godly masculinity. And um, I just tell you, this is from 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. David said this to his son Solomon, King David. It says, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, observe what the Lord your God requires, walk in obedience to him, and keep his decrees, his commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. Who wants to prosper in here? Anybody want to prosper? Who wants the book? Ah, he's ready. Come and get it, man. That's, I respect that right there. Word, yeah. So, hey, listen. Anybody else want a book? I'll give you one for $15. Come to my table, all right? But the deal is, is this. I believe that it takes a man to show a man how to be a man. And um, I started writing that book about 20 years ago, to be honest with you. And um, I started writing it about being strong. You know, just there's four things I think you need that we can take from this that lead to us prospering. The first one is this, being strong emotionally, spiritually, physically, socially, in every way, intellectually, we have to be strong. There's something about strength, um, especially for a man, that's attractive to a woman. I've been married for 28 years. And I can remember early on, you know, as a football player, I was always an offensive lineman, but I was a big dude. You know, you used to wear those muscle shirts. You guys know, like the young guys go out in your little tank tops, and you wear your little muscle shirts. And then when your woman comes up next to you, you just instinctively give a little flex. So she feels the latch, you know what I'm saying? Like some of you guys know what I'm talking about. She's like, and she touches the muscle. She's like, ooh, you know? It's like, yeah, because you know ladies like the muscles, right? Well, now that I'm a little bit older, they don't roll like that. You know, now it's my wisdom. You know, the glory of an old man is his wisdom, right? But we have to be strong emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every way. I talk about them in the book, being strong. That's the first thing to manning up. And then we need to be observant. That's what King David says in verse 3. So he says, um, he says, um, so be strong, act like a man, observe what the Lord your God requires. That's by getting into the word of God. Man, I talk extensively on the fact that biblical illiteracy is killing us. We don't have enough people that are getting into the word of God. I talk about diving into the word. I believe that you should be in the word of God on a daily basis, not from a legalistic perspective, but if you want a good, healthy relationship, you need to spend time with the person you love on a daily basis. So reading the word. Too many people are getting their butts kicked by the devil because they're not reading the Bible. So be strong, observe what the Lord your God requires. And then it says, um, he says here, after you observe what the Lord your God requires, walk in obedience. So you got to be faithful. That's walking out. Don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. And then finally, you have to endure. That's when he says, he says, walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees, his commands, his laws, his regulations. You got to keep doing it. I'm going to close with this, just like, you know, the journey that we've been on. I told you before when I started, you know, one of the reasons why Angie hasn't been with us. I started writing that book 20 years ago. I, I first started writing it about things that I want my sons to know and my daughter even if I wasn't going to be around. We have four boys. Our oldest, Trey, he's um, just graduated from Mizzou. He's in Columbia. Michael, our number two, is at, um, is at Evangel. He's a worship leader. Now, let me just say this too. This is a shameless plug. has nothing to do with this message. If you got a daughter, 22 to 25, Come holler at a brother because my son's single, all right? I'm just telling you like that. Can I say that, Ange? I just did, all right? So <laughs> he's a good-looking brother. You can check him out on Facebook. Word. But so um, <laughs> back to Jesus. So, <laughs> but, you know, um, but, you know, I have these, you know, boys in our, um, our number three son, Mason. He's, he's a junior in high school. Then we got Josh, who's a freshman. And Katie, she's our little baby. We're not quitters. We kept going because we had to have the little princess, you know what I'm saying? And she's in eighth grade. But um, April 29th, of um, last year, I'll never forget, 
we get a call from the school. Our youngest, our middle son, Mason, um, they just said he's a little bit sickly. You know, um, had a cough, looked a little bit pale. And so he's like, you might want to come pick him up. And it's an hour before school ended. And I'm just like, that seems weird. That night, we had a busy night for our family. I was supposed to be going to a conference, a men's conference. Um, Our son, Josh, our youngest son, he had a play that he was in. Katie had sports or something. And Josh and or Trey and Michael are off at college. And so we had a busy night. And Angie's like, well, I'll just drop you guys off. And then and then I might just take him to urgent care just to see what's going on. Because he had a cough for a couple of weeks, but we just thought it was a cough allergy season, you know. So I'm at the men's conference there um, in, in Springfield, the James River Men's Conference. And, and I get these text messages that never come through. Because when you're in there, you don't get these messages. And all of a sudden, I get two or three of them in a row. Um, first one's like, hey, give me a call. Second was like, hey, you know, call me when you can. Hey, you know, really need you to call me. And then I also get one from one of my best friends who's a um, doctor at the urgent care there. He's like, hey, I think it's benign. And I'm like, what? That's all I get. So I leave and, and um, I go to the hospital, you know, and I'm like going in there. And um, Angie and Mason are back for some tests. And the doctor sees me coming and he calls me over, but he's on the phone. And so he calls me over. And when I get there, he puts the phone down. He's like, yeah, so, you know, they're back for testing your, your son and your, your wife. And, you know, we think it's, you know, benign. I'm like, wait, hold on. What? And he's like, yeah, you know, so the white blood cell counts were elevated and wah, 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 wah. That's all I hear. And I'm like, wait, stop. And he's like, yeah, so, you know, which I'm on the phone trying to talk to, you know, Mercy. We're going to try to get you over there to go to St. Jude's. I'm like, hold on. And then he could tell that I kind of didn't know everything, the extent of everything. And I was like, wait, wait, are you trying to say? And I didn't want to say the word. Because you know what white blood cell counts are. Benign. My son's 15. You shouldn't have to say that word. And he looks at me, and I'm like, so you're trying to say that, you know? And he's like, yeah. He's like, And I go, he didn't want to say it either. And I was like, wait, that means that my, and he's like, hold on. He has cancer? They ended up finding a a mass the size of my fist was in his chest. And so like within hours, they're starting to plan, they're doing the tests and, you know, and then it's about 9, 9.30 at night, Angie and Mason come back to the room. We don't want to alarm him, so we don't tell him. We're talking in the hall. They're switching us to hospitals to try to get in the St. Jude system. You know, we're, now we're at another hospital. They're calling a doctor in at midnight. I'm like, why do you got to call the doctor in? Is it this serious? Yeah, we're going to get you on a plane to Memphis right away. And wah, 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 wah. I'm going to tell you what, like, you know, everything was going well for us up until that time. Ministry's going good, running for Congress, the Lord's blessing us, things are going good, everybody's healthy. And I just felt like the devil just like, bam, punched me in the gut. And the wind, it just really went out of me for a while. I was trying to be strong. I was trying to be tough and make the decisions that need to be made during the time. And within hours, they're putting my wife and my son Mason on a plane from Springfield, Missouri. They're flying them to five hours south of St. Jude. They're telling us they need to be there for three and a half, you know, months. And the treatment has to do this. And it's going to be two, three-year protocol. And just, it's coming at you. And at the time, I had, you know, my daughter, Katie, who's in eighth grade, my son, Josh, they're with me. And um, we, we put Angie and Mason on a plane. They fly them there. And I see them take off. And I remember, you know, Josh and Katie were in the back seat. And... I'm in the front seat and I'm trying to be strong. I mean, not that I don't ever care if they see me cry, but I'm trying to be strong because I know that they're emotional and I just didn't have any words to say. I had no words. So I turn on you know, some worship music and I can see them holding back tears and 
And I was just praying. And now when I got home, like really I got to go back a couple months before this, the Lord had kind of instructed me in my bedroom to set up a chair. It's my old chair. It's like them old platform chairs. Pastor, you remember those platform chairs we used to have when we sat on the stage? And, and I put that chair, I have this old ugly chair. It's like lavender. And Angie's been trying to get rid of it for a number of years, but no, it's my favorite chair because it's tall enough to where when I watch the game, I can lay my head back, fall asleep, and if somebody tries to steal the remote, I wake up and pretend like I was watching the whole time. You know, that's what we do, right? It's wide enough, too, because for obvious reasons, you know, I got a big old wide booty, you know what I'm saying? So, but it's my chair. But Angie doesn't like it, and we've, we've compromised, so we put different slip covers over it, and I keep it in the house, and she tries to keep saying, it's got to go, it's got to go, but I'm like, no, it's my chair. So the Lord told me, we moved into this new house a few years back, he's like, hey, put that chair at the foot of your bed, and if you come and spend time with me, I'll bless you. That's what God would tell me. So I started to do that. I started to just go there and pray in the mornings and the evening times. And just I'd just spend time with the Lord and connect with him. And so when I got home that afternoon, you know, after seeing my wife and son on the plane flying to Memphis, not knowing what's going to happen, and I'm taking care of Josh and Katie, the Lord said to me, Alex, if you come and spend time with me in the chair, I'll bless you. So I did. I went to that chair, and that night, I just sat there, and I prayed, and I cried, and I turned on my my phone, my worship playlist, I put it right next to my bed and I fell asleep to that. And that was a Saturday night. And I remember waking up Sunday and the Lord said, hey, get up and take your kids to church. I was like, I can't do it. I'm not going to go. And the Lord's like, Alex, take your kids to church. And so finally I did. And he says, when you get back, come to this chair and spend time with me and I'll bless you. And I did that. And then that night, spent time with him, he blessed me. The next day, I went back to that chair and spent time with him, he blessed me. The next night, and the next morning and the next day. And I'm going to tell you what, man, that's what's been getting me by over this last year and a half. That was a year and a half ago. Now, I will tell you this. Our son, Mason, he's doing extremely well. He's been declared cancer-free. Amen. But he's going through weekly chemo. And um, we're St. Jude's family. Every Monday he goes and they put poison in him. And they try to make sure it doesn't come back. I mean, all of his... All of his tests are good. We, when Angie and I, this is the first time that Angie's been felt comfortable enough to leave him for four days. And um, we're on the journey, man. And I'm gonna tell you this, like when I was finishing up this book around probably, I don't know, July, June, July of this year, the Lord kind of told me, he's like, Alex, it's time to finish that. Because then that fourth thing that we have to do, the endurance part, I got some skin in the game now got some skin in the game. I know what it's like to, to be at the end of Alex, because I think I can do a lot in my own strength. I'll be honest with you, and I, it's embarrassing to say, but I can preach, I can teach, I can do some things in my own strength, but man, I ran out of Alex this year, and I needed the Lord, and he's been there for me. And the things and the times where I want to give up, the times where I feel inadequate, because that's probably the biggest thing that's got me. I just feel inadequate. Like, I'm not, I don't know how to do the dad thing, like, you know, Angie's super mom. Literally like seven and a half months over this last year and a half, she's been down in Memphis with Mason and I've been trying to make lunches, get kids to school, take them to every event. And you know, let's be real. Like white people, y'all don't just drop your kids off. Y'all go and sit there. You talk to everybody there. Like I, I ain't used to that as a brother. We just drop kids off or say, find a ride. You know what I'm saying? But I, I gotta be super dad now. But the Lord's giving me a strength and he's teaching me some things. He's teaching me how to man up and endure. And so when I stand before you, and when I go into the inner city and I tell these young kids and I tell them that, or if I go into a jail and I tell them this, I'm like, man up. 
You can do it. You can do all things. You can be the man that God's called you to be. You can be the father. You can be the husband. You can be the church member, the community member. You can do all things through Christ because he gives you the strength. You got to be strong. You got to be observant. You got to be faithful. You got to learn to endure. And then you're going to prosper. And I'm telling you guys this. This has been the toughest year for me with our family. But it's been the best year that we've had with our ministry, with the gospel being spread. We've gone out about 35, 40 times this year. I spread this message to people. We've seen people come to dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people giving their heart to the Lord. And I'm telling you guys this, if the Lord did it for me, he'll do it for you. And I'm gonna tell you, it's time for us men to man up and be the men that God's called us to be. Our families need it. Our communities need it. Our country needs strong men. It's time to man up, amen? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want to say a prayer, and I do apologize. I went a little bit long, but I just want to take this moment. Maybe you're in here this morning, and you'd say, Pastor, man, I hear your message, but it's hard for me to realize that because you have a strength maybe from the Lord, and that's what you're thinking, that I have that, but you don't have it. Can I share my faith with you? Can I share Jesus with you? Maybe you're here this morning, and you're, you're broken, you're hurting. Maybe you... You don't know what you need, but you know you need something. You feel empty, you feel alone, you feel inadequate. You feel like a failure. You're scared. Jesus is waiting. Jesus is waiting for you to open your heart. So if you're here this morning and, man, you, you just don't have the faith. You, maybe you've never asked Jesus to forgive you for your sins. You didn't know that the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. In Romans 6, 23, it says, the wages of the sin is death. So because you've sinned, you deserve to die and spend eternity away from God. But the Bible also tells us in Romans that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. The cool thing is, is that while you are still sinners, Christ died for you. That means while you sin in the past, while you sin now, and you're probably still gonna sin in the future, Christ still died for you. That's how much he loves you. And all you got to do is believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that he is Lord. You'll be saved. That's salvation. If you're here this morning and, and you need to receive that salvation and you want me to pray for you, and every head's bowed and every eye's closed, nobody's looking around, this isn't to embarrass anyone. But if that's you and you want me to include you in the prayer that I'm about to pray, would you just raise your hand? You can make eye contact with me and you can put it back down. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand and that hand. Anybody over here to my left, you want me to include you? I see that hand. I see that hand. Several hands all over the place. I don't want to miss out. Anybody else? You, you, need, you need to receive forgiveness for your sins. The bottom line is, if you were to stand before Jesus, you don't know where you'd be, but you want to know. I see that hand. You can put them down. I see those hands. Anybody else? All right. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's the way that I like to do it. I know this house. I know Pastor Luce. I've seen this, this church, this ministry. It's been a flagship ministry. We're going to say a prayer. This is called the salvation's prayer. Anybody say it, you're going, to be, you're going to be saved. Salvation is free and it is easy. I'm going, to, I'm going to say this prayer. I'm going to ask everyone to repeat it after me, whether you raise your hand or not. We just repeat it in solidarity. But before you do that, I want you to count the cost if you raise your hand because we're supposed to make disciples. This church wants to disciple you. What that means is it's not just, just saying this prayer. They want to get you a Bible. They want to get you plugged in. They want to follow up with you. They want to make sure that you have fellowship, get you in a small group or a Sunday school so that you can start becoming more like Christ. We're going to say this prayer for salvation, free and easy, but salvation, that's going to cost you something. Some of your time, 
some of your energy, some of your efforts. So here's what I'm going to do. Let's have everybody go ahead and stand up, if you will. I don't know. There's just something more spiritual about standing, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to say this prayer, and if you raised your hand or if you need salvation, you want to receive forgiveness for your sins, man, believe it in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth. Would everybody just, this is the way that I do it. I like, I'll say it if you repeat it after me. Is that cool? Would everybody do this? Just say, dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I ask you to come into my heart and be the Lord of my life. I want to live for you because I love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I'm going to do. When, when Pastor Luce comes back up here, man, we, again, salvation free. Give us people a hand that raise their hand. Yeah, amen. Amen. I just can't stress enough. That's the first step. I mean, you're saved right now. You're going to heaven. There's nothing else to be said about it. There's no other conditions on salvation. We're supposed to make disciples. That's what our call for pastoring is. We want to help walk with you. I don't live here. Pastor Luce does. And I know this church, I can speak for this church. I've seen the fruit of this church for years. For 80 years, they've been doing it, making disciples. If you raised your hand, man, they're gonna show you how to get connected. If you don't have a Bible, they'll get you one, get you in a small group. Wanna get you connected because we wanna help you become the Christian that God's called you to be, amen? Hey, I wanna connect with you as well. I'll be at my table back there. And um, thank you guys for your time. And I'll just tell you this, yeah, thank you for your time. Man, if you want, um, man, please come and get one of our prayer cards because we need you to pray for us. We're going into St. Louis. We're going to inner cities of, um, of, um, of um, Chicago and Kansas City and even in Denver. We need you guys to be praying for us. And if you want to support our ministry, we're missionary chaplains. We'd love you to do that. You can go to alexbryant.org and do that. So come see us at our table. God bless you.